And to have your kids praying for you, that's awesome. Hopefully God answers your prayer, Jessica, for everyone's sake. <laughs> well, this morning, it's okay, take your time. <laughs> hey, we love our worship people. They're awesome. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles... Open up to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10, and our title is Spiritual Greatness. And this actually, Matthew chapter 18, is a very familiar, very well-known reference. So just like, as far as like knowing specific references, people, instead of describing what's in Matthew 18, actually just refer to the chapter. Oh, yeah, this is a Matthew 18 situation. So it's like just like one of those chapters that people know the reference of. And as we go through it, both this week and next week, there are going to be so many familiar phrases that we hear all the time. And one of the things that I love about going through the Bible and teaching through the, the Bible is a lot of times we, we quote phrases, phrases that are popular, we have a tendency to actually kind of miss like the big picture or the point of the passage. And so this is going to be a really just enjoyable morning of just looking through uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1 through 10 is talking about spiritual greatness. And the disciples are going to ask Jesus, uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is a discussion that just constantly comes up with the disciples. They're always distracted. Um, and they're, they're distracted um, with the desire for, for personal greatness. And that actually distracts them from spiritual greatness, which is something that we really should pursue. And Jesus always just redirects them to what is significant. Okay, my little fuzzy thing that's supposed to stop the uh, stop the me blowing on there it fell it fell off somewhere today, so uh, anyway I apologize for all that. Um, I just moved it, so hopefully that will help. Um, but Jesus is always directing them back um, to the things that are of spiritual significance and important. And so the disciples go to Jesus and they say, um, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is going to tell them three things. And the first thing he says is he says, hey, quit worrying about who's greatest in, king in the kingdom of heaven and just make sure that you're in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember when in Matthew 10 when he sent the disciples out and they came back and they're like, oh, man, the demons are, are obeying us and we're able to heal people. And Jesus says, hey, don't be excited that demons are obeying you. Be excited that your names are written in the book of life. And so that's the first thing. Instead of worrying about being who's, instead of worrying about who's the greatest in heaven, worry about whether or not you're in the kingdom of heaven. The second thing that he's going to tell his disciples is, you want to think about being spiritually great? You better make sure that you don't do anything to cause another person to sin. Sin is a significant thing. And you need to consider your influence on the people around you. And then the third thing that he says is you better do anything possible to make sure that sin is not in your life. Sin's significant. It's, de it's destructive. And so we make sure we don't harm others. And we make sure we're not giving into it ourselves. 
So this is, um, this is where we're headed this morning. And just the context, it's this conversation. It's interesting. The disciples are always talking about who's greatest when Jesus is talking about going to the cross. And you just, you read this, the, all the different times that this comes up, and we'll be coming back to this again. But when you read all those times, it's like Jesus is talking about these spiritually significant things, and they're completely missing the importance of what's going on because they're focused on themselves. And so Jesus is telling them he's going to go to the cross. And so he shifts the discussion here to two. I'm going to just share two words. One is salvation, and the second is sanctification. So salvation is when we're saved. Sanctification is how we actually live out that salvation. So let's, um, let me just remind you where we are. I want, I'll show you a map. So um, Jesus is going to go into Capernaum. And this was Peter's ho hometown, so that this is where this takes place. And here's a picture of this city. And when we look at the book of Mark, chapter 9, verse 33, it says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? So here's the interesting thing as far as causing other people to stumble, causing other people to sin. The disciples are walking to this city, and we find out that they're fighting with each other. They're debating with each other who's the greatest. And we're going to come back to this whole idea of who's the greatest in a few weeks. And in that case, there's going to be a couple of the disciples that are going to get their mom, Jesus' aunt, to go to them. And they're going to say, hey, can you... Aunt, can you go ask Jesus if he'll let us sit on his right and left? And all the other disciples are mad at them for doing that. So we'll, we'll cover that later. But, but here they are again, even before that, debating and arguing about who's the greatest. And um, it is most likely, it says that, it go, that they go into a house in Capernaum. This is most likely Peter's house that they go to. This is where Peter lived with his wife. And um, so that, they've, they've built in, in Israel, you can actually go to the city, and that little circle there, that is Peter's house. And so they've done a lot of archaeological research, and they actually have found Peter's name written on there, and it's from the right time, and it's from the right date. And so this is probably, like, this is just a, one of the crazy things about going to Israel is to walk around and to look at places and to remember this really happened. As I've, and it really happened in this spot. And to, to be able to go and look at the steps up to the temple and to think about, you know, the apostles like walked up and down these steps. Jesus walked up and down these steps. And to be able to go to Israel and look at this, look at this location and know this is where this took place. You know, it is so different as you read the Bible and you see all these historical connections. There's a lot of other religious books that you read and some of the other ones I've read that are like, oh, once upon a time this happened and that happened. Or, or when you look at like the, the specific references to places, they don't exist. They never existed. There's no historical evidence for any of these things that have taken place. That is so different with the Bible. Now, the other thing that's going to happen here. And this is an interesting thing to, to think about. Jesus is going to pick up a kid and put, put this kid on his lap. And he's going to use this child as an illustration. And this happens in Peter's house where we know Peter's married. And so we don't know for sure, but it's possible that this was Peter's kid. That, that the example, the illustration that Jesus uses, that he reaches over, he grabs Peter's kid, sits him on his lap, and then gives this story. What an amazing thought. So the disciples, they're going to ask, 
who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's read this first four verses. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. You know, when you think about this desire for spiritual greatness, um, that's actually something that we should pursue. And for the disciples and their little bickering and arguing, they're thinking about their personal position, their personal um, priority, their, their personal elevation in this world. Jesus was the, first, was the foretold king that was coming to set up his kingdom. And so they're, they're seeing priority. Man, we're, it's the king, and we're going to be his right and left-hand men. And Jesus is going to redirect their attention because spiritual greatness is actually something that we should desire and that we should pursue. Um, First Peter or First Timothy chapter three, um, it says this: the the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You know, desiring desiring spiritual leadership, desiring places of influence, is not bad when it's the work that you desire, but when it's your own ego, when it's your own gratification that, that you're desiring, when it's, when it's um, people seeing you as important and favor from men, when that's what you desire, that's actually a bad thing. And that's the challenge um, in spiritual leadership. Um, Jeremiah chapter 45 verse 5 says this, it summarizes it well. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. And I think that that's the key for the disciples bickering and fighting over who's the greatest, is that they desired things for themselves. And, and that is just such a challenge for all of us. That's something that every single one of us can struggle with. You know, when Jesus was talking about greatness, um, he were, do you remember what he said about John the Baptist? So he looks at John the Baptist and he says, there's been no one born among women that is greater than John the Baptist. And when we, when we look at John the Baptist and what his life was like, um, John the Baptist is there. He's announcing the way of Jesus, and crowds are following him. Everybody's coming out to hear him preach. And then Jesus shows up, and all the crowds disappear, and everybody starts following Jesus. And John's disciples are so troubled. They come and they say, hey, John, what's going on? Look, look at this guy. Everybody's following him. Our crowds are disappearing. And this is what John says in John 3, 27. He answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And so John the Baptist just tells his disciples, every single thing I have, it's only because God gave it to me. Do you think about that in your own life as you think about any ministry successes, any career successes, anything you do well, anything you have, actually you only have because God gave it to you. And did you know that that's not just true for believers? That is true for every person. Do you remember when um, Pilate is talking to Jesus and he's about to execute him? 
And Jesus says to Pilate, he says, you only have authority over me because it was given to you. And so even Pilate, his position where he was was only because God gave it to him. Nebuchadnezzar, very powerful king in the Old Testament that God raises up to go punish Israel. Um, so he, he deports them, and he's got the slave Daniel. And as he's kind of getting arrogant and prideful, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, everything you have, you only have because God gave it to you. And that's actually a lesson in Daniel chapter 4 that God teaches Nebuchadnezzar. So that's actually something for us to keep in mind. Of course, that's true for believers, but that's actually true for everyone. Now look at verse 3. Jesus is going to tell them. He's going to answer the question. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says truly, that's like this solemn thing where he's getting their attention. It's actually the word amen, which is the Hebrew word for truth, and it gets transliterated in Greek, and so it's just the Hebrew word spelled with Greek letters, and, and we say it every time we pray. It's let that be true, and so Jesus is going to get their attention. He's going to say this is a very solemn thing. Truly I say to you, so he's getting their attention. He says unless you turn and become like children. You know, these disciples, it's interesting throughout Jesus' ministry, they are constantly shooing away the kids. Send them away, send them away, get this kid out of here. And Jesus is constantly saying, no, bring the little children. And he's constantly pointing to the kids. Jesus loved kids, and so should we. But Jesus takes these disciples, they're, they're prideful, they don't appreciate the kids. They just want the kids out. And Jesus says, no, actually, unless you become like these kids, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the things that is interesting as you go through Scripture is that's probably the most common way that Christians are referred to as, as children of God. And so he tells them this. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him who believe in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. And so when you look at the, the word where he says um, that word for never there, you will never enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a child. That is the strongest, most powerful way to say never. And so what, what are children? Children are trusting and they are completely dependent Think about little kids. You, you can tell kids anything. I remember um, there was this older pastor in our church years ago, and I remember walking out into the office, and he had these little uh, four- and five-year-old kids on chairs in the office. And they're standing there, and they're jumping off the chairs, and they're flapping his ar their arms. And I'm listening to him talk to these kids, and he says, hey, uh, he was saying to them, have your parents ever taught you how to fly? And so he's got these kids jumping off chairs, flapping their arms, you know, trying to learn how to fly. He's like, you've got to keep practicing it. I mean, he was, just, he, was a, he was a funny guy. He was teasing these kids. But with little kids, it's like they just, they trust. And kids are completely dependent. They need help. They can't do anything on their own. And, and Jesus is saying that from a spiritual perspective, you need to trust Jesus, and you need to recognize that you have nothing to offer you are completely dependent. In verse 4, he says, Whoever humbles himself like this child 
is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip in your phones over Luke to Luke chapter 18. And, and this is one of the things that's true of children, and it's something that actually is, needs to be true of us for us to be able to even enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and he's going to close this story off by talking about kids. This is what he says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's amazing how often when you're sharing the gospel with people or talking to people about their spiritual condition, that if you ask people, hey, um, if you were to die and stand before God, um, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Do you know how many people say, well, I'm a good person? Have you ever, you ever talked to people and they go, no, I'm basically a good person, I'm good. Um, so many people see themselves as good. And, and one of the beginning places of salvation is that we realize we are not good, we are sinful, we are separated from God, we are in dire need of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so it just says that these, he's talking about people who trusted in themselves, verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him, them. But Jesus called them to himself and saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's that starting place of just saying, I'm not good, I have nothing to offer, but Jesus, you loved me and you died for me. That is the, the beginning place of salvation. You know, pride, pride is the opposite of humility, and it's something that we, we can struggle with so much. You know, pride is self-centered. Now, pride always thinks about how is this going to affect me? What's happening in my life? Pride is self-centered. Prideful individuals are not helped by knowledge. Uh, the, more, the more a prideful person learns, the more prideful they become. And God's actually opposed to them. A lot of times we think that the smarter people are and the more talented they are, the more God can use them. The reality is the smarter you are, the more talented you are, the less likely you are to be used. It is a miracle that God ever saves and uses a well-educated person. That, that is a tremendous miracle um, because prideful people normally are destroyed by knowledge. Uh, prideful individuals are not encouraged 
by compliments. They're destroyed by the compliments. Prideful people are blind to what others are going through and all they think about is themselves. Prideful people justify themselves instead of recognizing uh, what's going on in their own life and their own struggles. And prideful individuals don't learn. Uh, they're offended every time anybody talks to them about anything. You know, it's interesting as you read through the book of Proverbs, um, just how God talks about pride. And here's the thing with pride is that we need to recognize that we all struggle with it. These things can be true of any of us. Jesus goes on and he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You know, Jesus talks about receiving and wel welcoming children. This is actually talking about love for the body of Christ, um, being hospitable, being welcoming to the people that God brings into your life, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's, it's recognizing that Jesus takes personally how we treat other people. You ever thought about that? Like, have you ever come to church and there's somebody that just rubs you wrong? Or you see somebody and you're like, oh, man, I want to go the other way. Or somebody's hurt your feelings and you want to avoid them. You ever thought about the fact that Jesus takes personally how you treat the people around you, especially when they're in the body of Christ? Matthew chapter 25, verse 33, we'll get there. But Jesus just gives a list and he basically says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick or in prison, and you visited me. And he says that um, in the affirmative and in the negative. He goes through the same list, and he says, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. And both groups of people look at Jesus, and they say, hey, when did that happen? I don't remember seeing you and feeding you, or I don't remember seeing you in need of food and not feeding you. And Jesus' resp response is to say, in that you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Now think about that as you're going around and as you're seeing people to recognize that the way you treat people, Jesus takes that personally. And so this is what Jesus is telling his disciples as they're saying to some little kid, Hey, get out of here, kid. You bother me. And Jesus is just reminding them, no, your attitude toward that kid, I take personally. So we need to make sure if you want to be great in God's kingdom, certainly that involves humility. Um, but we got to make sure we're in the kingdom of heaven before we worry about who's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's the second thing. Jesus goes on, and he's going to say, do not cause other believers to sin. Jesus is going to emphasize the importance of the way we influence the people around us. This is what he says in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, so Jesus is talking about Christians, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You know, I think that um, on many occasions, we don't think about the significance of that. Jesus says, if you cause a brother or sister in Christ to sin, you would be better off dead 
um, th this is something that is very significant. And it's interesting, um, just right outside Peter's house, if you're looking at Peter's house and you just turn around, this is what you see. It's a millstone. So Jesus was probably looking out there and he saw that. And so the millstone is that little round thing with the hole in the center on the top. And people would pour grain into that. And then out of that hole in the center would be this long post that they would attach a donkey to. And the donkey would just walk around. And that heavy millstone would just crush the, crush the grain. And Jesus is saying you'd be better off getting that, that rock tied around your neck having a ship take you out into the middle of the sea and just throw you off and being drugged down to the bottom of the sea, that would be better than causing one of these little children of mine to sin. Pretty significant that we're caref careful about this. Um, so what are ways that believers harm other Christians? You ever thought about this? What are ways that you cause other people to sin? What are things that we need to guard against? What are things that we need to be thoughtful of? Well, here's one, false teaching. You ever thought about this? Jesus has given his word, and there are so many people that, that they actually are not really familiar with the Bible. They, they maybe don't really understand what God says, and yet they just confidently teach other people. First Timothy talks about that, these people who make confident assertions about things that they don't even understand. And so these false teachers that mislead people, James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, for in doing so you will incur a stricter judgment. So a lot of times um, we've got to be careful in the way that we teach people, in the way that we influence people. Um, it, there's a lot of people who just feel like, oh, yeah, the Bible's a free-for-all. Let's just take it. Let's just pick what we like, and then let's promote that. Think about this. When, when a person misrepresents God's word and causes a person to sin, and they're teaching them things that aren't true, um, that's one of the, Jesus is just saying, hey, you're going to mis mislead people. You're going to cause people to sin by misrepresenting my word. You're better off sticking a rock around your neck and jumping off a boat. Um, what about sexual sin? It's one of the things I think about. 1 Thessalonians 4 actually gives a description of that. You ever known um, two believers who are dating each other and then they end up blowing it physically? Like, think about that. Um, the Bible says that God judges people who do that. Like imagine the, the severe consequences for a Christian to lead another person into sin. And I think we have a culture that just, we ignore these kinds of things. We don't take them seriously instead of thinking about, hey, not only is this an issue in my life, but how do I influence the people who are around me? How about disunity? When in the church you can have people who their feelings get hurt or they don't like somebody and they actually encourage somebody to have a bad attitude toward another person. You know, we were just in our prayer class looking at John chapter 15 and how abiding in Christ should lead to love. It should lead to unity. Now think about the churches that you've heard about, the churches that you've been in when there have been conflicts and you have people that actually incite antagonism and hostility toward other people in the body of Christ. Um, Jesus says, if you're mad and you want to make somebody mad at somebody else, I got something better for you to do. Tie a rope around your neck, go jump off a boat in the sea. 
Um, how about a lack of forgiveness, which a lot of times leads to that disunity. Somebody hurts your feelings, so you want everybody else to be mad at that person. Um, how about encouraging somebody to violate their convictions? I remember um, as a young student, um, I'd be, uh, as an unbeliever, I used to drink a lot. And so I became a Christian, and I just thought, okay, all alcohol, all drinking, that's sinful. Uh, nobody should ever do that. So then I go to master's college, and I actually had to sign this statement as a student that I wouldn't drink and I wouldn't dance. There were, like, some other things, too. It's kind of weird. You know, Michelle's dad's not a believer, and we're getting married. And I had to go to the school administration and say, you know, it's an Italian wedding. It would be really weird if Michelle and I didn't dance at this Italian wedding and so I was just explaining to them that as a testimony, I should dance. And so I actually got this exception so I could dance at my wedding. <laughs> but during that period of time, I was actually helping uh, one of our elders work on his house. And while I was there, he cracked open a beer and he's offering everybody a beer. And he's saying, hey, Rod, you, here, have a beer. And I said, no, I, I can't drink. And actually at the time, I actually had a conviction that it would be wrong for me to drink anyway. But aside from that, I actually signed something saying I wouldn't drink as long as I was a student. And I just remember telling this gentleman, nah, you know what, I can't do that. Uh, I think that would be wrong. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with drinking, and it's not a sin. And so he's really trying to encourage me to do it. And I just said, yeah, you know, I actually signed something saying I wouldn't drink. And he's encouraging me. Now think about this. Um, if I would have taken a beer and drank it, of course, that's an issue between me and the Lord. But here's a person who's supposed to be concerned about my spiritual well-being. And he's encouraging me to do something wrong. And so even though he didn't think it was wrong, I felt like it was wrong. And we don't encourage people to violate their convictions. And sometimes people have uninformed convictions and we need to help them think rightly about what scripture says about things but we need to take seriously that we never cause another person to sin like think about this the way this works out in, in parenting you know the bible says don't exasperate your kids if as a parent you're exasperating your kids and you're frustrating them and you're making submission to you hard you're causing them to sin how about in a marriage? You ever do things that you know are going to irritate your spouse, and then your spouse gets mad, and they're in sin, right? Because spouses aren't allowed to get mad at us. But when we set those traps, when we do things that cause another person that we're married to to be angry with us, and sometimes there's all kinds of reasons why that happens, you know, think about the fact that that is causing a brother or sister to sin. You know, this is so serious that Jesus just says, hey, if you're going to do that, just tie around a, a big rock around your neck and jump off a boat. Um, so why is it, do you think, that sometimes we're so cavalier about sin? Why do you think that we're not so serious about that? I would say one of those, one of the reasons uh, that we can have a tendency to do that is because we don't actually love the people around us. We don't think about what it means for a person to step into sin and what that means in the sense of God's discipline in their life, what that means about how it harms them. And so we're just, we're careless sometimes in how we treat other people. 
So here's the, here's the third thing that Jesus is going to go on to say. And, and I think that this is related uh, when it comes to helping other people not sin. If you don't see sin as the destructive force that it is in your life, then you're not going to look out for the people around you. So the third thing that we're going to see is that we need to avoid sin. We need to avoid sin in our life at all costs. Look at this, Matthew 18, 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than, two, than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You know, Jesus is just going to say here that, that you need to avoid sin at any cost um, because it's so significant. And I think that what Jesus is talking about here, um, I think it's important for us to know that our eternal destiny does not hang in the balance of our obedience. It's not like, oh, okay, I, I sinned, now I'm going to be thrown into hell. Um, we're saved when Jesus steps into our life and saves us. This is a principle that Jesus is talking about, and he's already talked about it in Matthew 17, where he says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The whole issue of obedience, it is something that flows out of a Christian's life. We're not Christians because we obey, but when you're a Christian, you do obey. And a lot of times the reason that people are actually not looking out for other people's spiritual well-being is because they're not actually Christians. They're religious. And one of the reasons that many people don't take sin seriously in their own life is because they're actually not Christians. John 3.36 says, If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. If you don't obey me, you will not have eternal life, but God's wrath abides on you. And I think for a lot of us, we can be confused about what it means to be a Christian and to have a changed heart. And so, but let's just be clear. Our eternal destiny is not hanging in the balance of every decision that we make to follow God, to obey God, to not obey God. Jesus is just talking about how serious sin is. Now think about this in a dating relationship. You got two people that love the Lord more than they love each other. And, and when you just know, look, I love you, but if we blow it physically, <laughs> we're breaking up because I actually care more about pleasing God than pleasing you. Um, people who are struggling on the Internet, well, it's inconvenient to have filtering software on my phone. Um, this is Jesus saying that no matter what it takes, you put sin out of your life. Um, if you cut your hand off, cut your feet off, whatever you need to do, get sin out of your life. You know, sin, uh, a friend of mine, and I don't know who said this, but my, I had this friend who would just say, just sin, sin makes people stupid. And it's like when you get wrapped up in sin, people do the most ridiculous things. Sin is so terribly destructive in ways we can see. 
A lot of times you can look at people who have disregarded what God says in life, and, and a lot of people, they're, they're, they're heartbroken, they're upset. How could my life be such a mess? Well, let's just trace your life back to why it's a mess. It's because all of the things that God said about how you should live, you ignored, you disregarded, and now your life's a mess and you're mad at God. Sin is destructive, and in ways we can see broken emotions you know, there are so many people I've seen that they've ignored everything that God says about what to look for in a spouse. And then they're in a terrible marriage, and it's so confusing and so frustrating and so upsetting. I remember conversations I've had with people that were single, and they were just dying being single. Have you ever met someone like that, that they're single and they feel like their life just cannot go on? And, and I've, I remember having a conversation with this this one individual in that situation, and I just said, you know, you may be really struggling with being single, but make a bad marriage choice, and you will long for the days when you are single. Um, by the way, every Christian marriage struggles too. Um, we, all, we all struggle, right? Like, I got two marriage books I like. Uh, one is uh, just what did you expect, you know? And another one was when sinners say I do. The, the bottom line is that we're all sinners. Take two sinners, stick them together. They're going to struggle. So don't hear from me that if you do everything right, you'll have a perfect marriage. That is not true. Um, but broken, broken emotions, broken families, broken bodies, loss of opportunity, um, and all kinds of things. One of the things I think about is uh, we know four people who were taken out of Israel. Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What other opportunities were there? What other amazing things might God have done had people obeyed him? But it's like we have no idea because those were the, those were the four individuals that were spiritually faithful. You know, um, sin hurts us in ways we can see, but it also sees us in ways we can't see. There's all kinds of losses of spiritual blessing that we don't know because it's not there. There are elements of life that we may have that we don't have because we disregarded what God says. Um, people are hurt in ways that they don't realize. Think about our culture. If, if Christians were faithful in how they functioned in the world and how they voted and how they were involved, how might our country be different if Christians were faithful? There are ways we don't even realize there are human consequences to sin. Um, Proverbs chapter 1 just says that, uh, talking about sinful people that disregard God and want to do evil things, and it just says that these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And a lot of times sin, just sin by itself, just it causes all kinds of destruction. It doesn't take anybody punishing you. It's just dumb. Like you get in a car and you get drunk and then you drive the car into a, into a telephone pole and you're paralyzed. Sin brings all kinds of just natural consequences. But there are also supernatural consequences to sin. And this is why it's so important for us to read the Bible from the beginning to the end. You know, you think about the flood. God looked at a, a, a sinful world and just said, you guys are not repenting. And he drowned everybody on earth except Noah and his family. 
You look at the conquest of Canaan where God says to Israel, I want you to go into Canaan and I want you to wipe out every single person in that city. And why? Because for 400 years, they didn't repent. Psalm 50 talks about um, God just looking at people and saying, you know, you thought that I was like you. You thought that sin didn't matter because you were getting away with it. These Canaanites for 400 years living in sin, how often do people disregard God and everything goes okay? And then they disregard God and everything goes okay. And they disregard God and everything goes okay. And they think, oh, God's not real. None of this matters. But if you read the Old Testament, you realize, no, God's gracious. He's loving. He's patient. He's forgiving. He gives people opportunities. But eventually, there's a consequence. Um, one of my favorite stories is in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 43, where um, Elisha, he's a bald prophet. And all these kids come out, and they start mocking him for being balls, bald. And he calls uh, some bears out of, a, out of the forest to come attack these kids. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes people think, oh, that's just the Old Testament. But we have Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter 5, they walk into church, they, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and God kills them both. We have 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where people take the Lord's Supper irreverently. And it actually says, some of you are sick. Like, think about that, physical illness. They are sick because they show up to church and they take the Lord's Supper irreverently. And he goes on to say, and a number sleep. Like, there's a, that's, that's a reference to death, that there are people who die because they are irreverent toward the Lord. Um, I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. This is actually part, part of how um, God talks to us about what happened in the Old Testament. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these t things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. What? What things? The Old Testament. And it goes on. It says, do not be idolaters of some of, that, of some of them were, as it is written, when the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You, know, you got Israel out there grinding and grime, you know, complaining, complaining about God, having a bad attitude toward God, and he just sends people to wipe some of them out. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. The whole Old Testament is for you. It was written so that you could read it, so that you could understand it, so you would understand God, so that you would understand people, so that you would understand how God functions. And so he says that these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, and then this is where Jesus is going to talk, or Paul's going to talk about temptation to sin. And he goes on and he says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is humility. We, we approach life, we function in life realizing I'm weak. 
It's not just that these things happen to other people. These things could happen to me. So I need to be careful. I need to avoid temptation. Um, I'm not going to go um, spend... I'm not going to go hang out at, at my girlfriend's house when we're dating and watch movies until 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to avoid any place that temptation could happen. If there are things that I personally struggle with, whenever I get around this certain group of people, I gossip. Okay, I'm not going to hang out with those people anymore because every time I'm there, it leads me to sin. I'm weak. I need to, I need to recognize I'm weak. I need to be diligent to avoid these situations. And then God gives us this amazing pro promise in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Whatever you struggle with, so does everyone else. You're not unique. And then it goes on and it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, Jesus is saying here that sin is a serious thing. And, um, and I just want you to know, like, that is, that is an expression of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so I want to just, um, I want to read one more passage. And this is Psalm 32. Did you know that Christians hate it when they sin? That's partly how you know if somebody's a believer. Um, there's, there are some people that say, oh, yeah, God says these things, but I actually don't care what God says. I'm going to do whatever I want, and they're happy. Um, you can read the Old Testament and find out that there are all kinds of believers who are faithful who sin. But the difference between a believer who sins and somebody who's religious and sins is that when religious people sin, they like it. When a genuine believer sins, they hate it. It's this thing that weighs on them. They just, they want out. This is King David, somebody who is a man after God's own heart, but who has personal experience with sin. That's what it says in Psalm 32. It says, um, uh, here, let me go back to the beginning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So he's just saying, hey, you are so blessed when you obey God. And now he's going to tell a story about when he didn't obey God. He goes on in verse 3, and he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, everybody can read 1 Samuel, and you see this story about how David actually has an affair, and then he murders this man in order to cover it up, and it goes on for a year. And it would be easy to just go, yeah, no, David's fine. Like when you read the historical account of that, it's just, it's, he seems like he's good. But here we have a window into what was going on in his heart while that was going on. He was wasting away. He was dying inside. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then this is the awesome thing, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, God forgives us. He loves us. There's nothing that we can't do that Jesus can't forgive. And, and as believers, when we blow it, we confess it, we repent, and God takes broken lives and he puts them back together. You know, that, that whole story of, you know, I, I talk sometimes about people marrying people that God said they shouldn't marry. That's actually a personal story. And it's not about Michelle. Um, a while ago, I told you guys that Michelle's boss pulled over and tried to get her to pray the prayer, and she didn't pray it. Well, just to speed to the end of that, she eventually did become a Christian before I met her, and then I married her. But actually, I grew up in a house with a mom who was raised in a Christian home who learned all the things about God and who had a Baptist uncle preacher who went to her when she wanted to marry my dad, who was a Mormon, and went to her and said, Mormons aren't Christians. Don't marry him. And I grew up in a home with a mom, Christian mom, married to a Mormon dad. And our house was um, not a spiritual house in any way. There was so much pain and sorrow, so much difficulty, so much division, so much lack of unity, so much pain and sorrow um, that was a direct result of that decision. I grew up in that. But one of the things that God has blessed me with is to allow me to see my dad eventually come to know the Lord and to see how God took that situation and just worked it out for good in, in all kinds of ways. And that's not to say, yeah, ignore God. It, it's cool. It'll work out. There is so much pain and sorrow in that. But here's the good news. It doesn't matter how you blow it. It doesn't matter what happens in one sense. It is never too late to repent, to fall on your face, to say, God, forgive me. And God loves people. He forgives them. He takes terrible situations and makes them good. But for us as believers, it's pretty significant that we quit worrying about how great we are personally and that we pursue spiritual greatness. It's pretty significant that we are so careful to encourage and to build up other believers and that we're not doing things that are a stumbling block and that are causing other people to sin. Think about this. The church is the bride of Christ. And, and what would happen if you attacked somebody's spouse? Um, it's very significant that we do not tear other people down spiritually. And it's important that we take sin in our own life seriously. Those are very important things. But it's just amazing, and, and I'm so thankful that our spiritual standing before God does not rest on our good works. I think about 1 John 3.20, and it says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. I think Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, Matthew 18 is an important chapter, and it's something that is hugely missing in the church today. People feel like sin's no big deal. Sin's a big deal. And we need to take it personally. We need to think about how it works its way out in our life. Next week's going to be fun because next week's the part where we talk about, okay, this is about you. Next week is what do you do when you see sin somewhere else in the church? What's God's plan for that? So that's what we'll talk about next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Lord, you love us. You forgive us when we sin. It, it doesn't matter how much we sin. 
Romans 5 says that where sin increases, grace abounds even more. And Lord, we're so thankful for that, that we're not trying to earn our standing before you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a gracious, merciful, kind group of people that are not hard on anyone because we realize, um, Lord, how merciful you've been to us. And I ask that you would help us to pour out mercy on others. And Lord, I also just ask that you would help us to be diligent and faithful and that through the Holy Spirit that we would be careful to obey you. We ask these things.